You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 190. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local Maximum. Uh, We're going to do a solo show today. Maybe this is going to be a quick solo show because, you know, this is just off of the kind of double two-part episode that I did with Aaron last week that, um, you know, on on our experiences on 9-11 and before and after that lasted, you know, two episodes. Um, I'm really happy how it came out. I'm kind of interested in, in what the feedback is, a very different sort of thing than, than what we did usually do. Uh, but there is video for that. So if you are interested in seeing the video, you can go on uh, YouTube or Odyssey and um, see uh, me and Aaron uh, discuss this stuff in person. Or if you just listen to it, you know, it's your, the, the previous two episodes on your, on your podcast app. Uh, so today I want to... This is episode 190, so it's a little bit, we've got, uh, you know, it's, whenever it's a whole number, a, a divisible by 10, I kind of, I, I like to sometimes when it's a, a divisible by 10 do a solo show and kind of reset things and uh, and summarize a little bit. I've got a little sore throat over the last couple of days, so hopefully I've got my... Uh, I've got my nice tea here with honey in it, so hopefully uh, I'll be good to go. But uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see how much I get. But I've I've essentially three topics to get through today, which I hope you'll uh, join me for. First is we're going to talk about uh, an article by Peter Bergosian, who just uh, essentially it's a it's a letter of resignation from his position at Portland State University because according to him, uh, the university system no longer seeks the truth. It's now openly ideological. And so I want to talk about that letter a little bit. It's very interesting. Actually, his background is very interesting. And also, um, you know, combine it with some of my ideas with academic openness and seeking the truth. The second thing I wanted to get to today, a smart toilet update because episode 114, which I did with Aaron last year, on smart toilets, I think is one of my favorite episodes of uh, of all time on the local maximum. And guess what? The Wall Street Journal is talking about smart toilets. So I want to talk about what they said. And finally, for those of you who want a math discussion, uh, I love doing math discussions on the show. You'll wait till the end. And I am going to talk about the inclusion and exclusion principle, which also involves layers. I think all of my, uh, today's theme is layers because everything involves uh, layers, especially the toilet, um, but also the idea of kind of academic openness and having different groups. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, okay, so uh, let's start off with the Peter Brigosian article. He actually posted this in the Barry Weiss substack. Uh, the, ti- the article is titled, and, and for those of you who already know his kind of you know, some of his activism he did a couple years ago. I'll get into that in a minute because it's pretty hilarious. Uh, But uh, his article is entitled, My University Sacrificed Ideas for Ideology. So today I quit. The subtitle is, The More I Spoke Out Against the Illiberalism That Has Swallowed Portland State University, The More Retaliation I Faced. So it's an open letter of resignation from his university. Um, I usually don't read, you know, I'm not going to read the whole thing verbatim, but there is, uh, there are a couple paragraphs that I do want to read and I do want to quote. Uh, He goes on, over the last decade, it has been my privilege to teach at the university. My specialties are critical thinking, ethics, and the Socratic method, and I teach classes like science and pseudoscience and the philosophy of education. Um, So just, just as an aside, this kind of 
caught my eye a little bit because sort of the idea of, you know, critical thinking and learning how to learn and, you know, expanding your perspective, all part of the local maximum. So maybe I can get him on the show. He continues, but in addition to exploring classic philosophers and the traditional texts, I've invited a wide range of guest lecturers to address my classes from flat earthers to Christian apologists to global climate skeptics to Occupy Wall Street advocates. I'm proud of my work. I invited these speakers not because I agreed with their worldviews, but primarily because I didn't. From those messy and difficult conversations, I've seen the best of what our students can achieve, questioning beliefs while respecting believers, staying even-tempered in challenging circumstances, and even changing their minds. Also an aside, not something people are good at these days. Okay, continuing to quote. I never once believe, nor do I now, that the purpose of instruction was to lead my students to a particular conclusion. Rather, I sought to create the conditions for rigorous thought to help them gain the tools to hunt and furrow for their own conclusions. This is why I became a teacher and why I love teaching. But brick by brick, the university has made this kind of intellectual exploration impossible. It has transformed a bastion of free inquiry into a social justice factory whose only inputs were race, gender, and victimhood, and whose only outputs were grievance and division. So he goes on to state a lot of examples of this that are really telling. Um, and so I, you know, I encourage you to read the whole article. I'm, you know, I, I, uh, I'll post it on localmaxradio.com slash 190. But the takeaway from me is that, you know, he feels that he's not working with you know, reasonable people who are open to questioning and open to um, having their assumptions challenged or open to just like, you know, uh, justifying what they're doing. Uh, The university system has been taken over by a rigid ideology. And that's a big problem. Uh, And I think either one day it'll break or new, the fever will break or new institutions will take its place because ignoring reality is uh, in the long term an unsustainable uh, an unsustainable strategy. It could be sustainable in the short term, lead to bad consequences, but in the long term, it's unsustainable. So if you want to think long term, you think, okay, how do we get beyond this? Um, Peter Bergosian uh, did a, a little bit of activism in the past. So this is, <laughs> this is hilarious. When he published fake papers in academic journals, why would you publish a fake paper in academic journals. He was trying to show that they were not serious because they were, uh, these things were deliberately pseudoscience, but, um, they reached the conclusions uh, that the journals were looking for, or they were in the style that the journals were looking for. And these were in peer-reviewed journals. So one from 2017, I think this was his first one, was titled, uh, and I'm not making this up, The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct, published in the peer-reviewed Cogent Social Science. Uh, and in this paper, he argues that a penis is is not a real thing. It's really an abstract concept. <laughs> I quote in the abstract, we argue that the conceptual penis is better understood not as an anatomical organ, but as a social construct isomorphic to performative toxic masculinity. And this thing goes on and on. And this, and he just kind of made it up. And this crap just got posted. No one noticed. So he kept, and, and no one noticed. No one like said, oh, we better make some changes. So he kept doing more and they just got increasingly absurd from there. Um, and, uh, and, and he kept getting them into journals. So it's, uh, it's not hard to see why the Academy doesn't like, that, like him. Uh, they're probably saying that he's making a mockery of their system. Of course, you know, it's really the system that's making a mockery of itself by publishing this stuff. I mean, there's a point. It's not like a, an open 
uh, journal where everyone can can publish. It's like they have standards. They have peer reviewed peer peer review, and he's just stress testing it. And they they fail the stress test. It's like you know if you try to get all these weapons past TSA and you just go right past easily. Uh, that's uh, you know again maybe they're not keeping us safe. Same things here. Um, but the uh, academy will resort to intimidation tactics rather than dialogue, uh, which is again what happens when people uh, seek power over truth. You're not actually going to get a discussion. So ultimately. Uh, Peter Bogosian decided that he couldn't change the system from within, which is uh, which is why he left, and which is why uh, you know we like to embark on talk about, or, or hopefully people will embark on these long term projects to build replacement systems. This is happening uh, from you know everywhere from money and finance to also education. It's been going on for a while. It's going to be a very long road, but uh, I think in the end it will be a worthwhile one. I don't know what, uh, well, I mean, we talk about the future of all this stuff on this podcast. We, you know, money and finance, we talk about crypto and Bitcoin, education. What is the future of education? What is the future of academia? Very hard to say. Uh, it feels like we've we've gone on an unsustainable path where it's getting increasingly insular. Um, how long can it how long can that be sustained? Um, and also, how long can the education bubble be sustained where it's like so expensive, but the value of it is, uh, is uncertain? Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, but uh, I am excited to have more discussions about this on the local maximum in the future. So I want to refer on this one uh, to my idea of like layers of free speech and academic freedom that I talked about in episode 184 when I talked about academic freedom and I'd like to refine my idea to talk about layers in communities in general that help us figure out who we're going to interact with and how to find truth and how to, you know, figure out if you're either truth-seeking community or it doesn't have to be a truth-seeking community, if, you're, uh, if your community or society or country is a healthy one. So if you have a country a society or community, you know, one thing to ask is, you know, what ideas kind of need to be universally accepted among this group? Uh, so if the answer is, if the answer is none, like if you want, um, if you want a global community and you want to avoid like having some universalist idea that like everybody has to follow it, it, it well, it, it might not, it's not going to work well without conflict. I mean, even if the, even if the rule is, you know, even if the rule in the UN with countries is like, okay, you know, any country could do what it wants and we're not going to, uh, we're not going to intervene. Well then, you know, but one country could, uh, you know, could attack another. And then, and then uh, you know, so you obviously don't have a, uh, and then if you want to say, okay, no country can attack another, that's already saying, well, here's kind of a universal idea we want everyone to accept in order to maintain the peace. So it, it, it you do have to have, some sort of universally accepted norm uh, to function as a society. Um, and so this, the answer of, of no universally accepted ideas I don't think holds up very well, but the answer of uh, a broad range of ideas, a very broad range of ideas does seem to work. Um, because if you want to say a very narrow, you know, if you want to say, and then of course, so, so let me put it this way. If your society is very big, you want to have 
a set of kind of universally accepted ideas that is very broad. In other words, it's a big tent. If you want a small group, then you could have a very narrow group of people who generally have the same ideas about things. So in other words, it it will work in layers. You know, many religious and political organizations work like that, where there'll be umbrella organizations that have a much broader set of ideas uh, for which the constituent parts kind of disagree. And so I feel like that is, I mean, I, I talked about the idea of, you know, freedom of speech. Uh, you know, we have a very, very broad freedom of speech throughout the country. But what kind of freedom of speech do you have, uh, you know, in the university? I still think it should be very broad. And I think that the ideas put forth actually uh, in, in this uh, article by Peter Prigozhin about, you know, really bringing in people you disagree with and trying to have those discussions and uh, in some cases, like, you know, flat earthers, it's people who might, you know, might not be worth listening to academically, but it's actually a good practice to talk to people who you kind of disagree with and sort of see, okay, how do we, how do we have this discussion without shouting each other down? And so that's, I, I feel like that is a good practice in kind of an academic setting. And so... Uh, I feel like we have to have that layer on top of it for academia. I feel like what's happening now in academia is that the range of discussion and the rules of debate are getting very narrow, and it's becoming increasingly acceptable to, uh, you know, bully and harass people who are outside that narrow range of debate. And so they're basically trying to run a broad truth seeking operation, or at least they're, they're, uh, they're uh, selling themselves as a broad truth-seeking operation, but they're acting like they're kind of a very narrow cult-like situation. And so what's going to happen is, well, either they're going to shrink or they're going to, um, or, or they're going to make it out the other side and ultimately, uh, you know, ultimately, the, the the fever will break, like I said before. So I don't really know which will happen, but the situation is is unsustainable the way I see it. All right. So enough of that. Um, this is. I feel like I'm not terribly. Uh, I, I I wish I was a little bit more uh, articulate on this issue, and so I seek to be. That's why I talk about it more. But if if you have any thoughts on on how academic freedom should work, or you know what's going to happen there or, you know, what, uh, what's a good way to have these discussions or to deal with people who might not be uh, interested in rational debate, uh, please uh, go on my locals, max, uh, maximum.locals.com or send me an email, localmaxradio at gmail.com. All right, next up, this is the one you've been waiting for, smart toilets. This is from the Wall Street Journal. Uh, smart toilets are back in the news. They have this section, the future of everything section, um, again, one of my favorite episodes on the local maximum was episode 114, Biden joins the Potterverse, which that didn't last very long, uh, and smart toilets. <laughs> that was a really funny discussion. I'm not going to go through all our smart toilet puns and jokes today. Um, I think one of the questions is, is this something we really need? Maybe? I'll leave that up to you. So in episode 114, we talked about the Stanford toilet. All these universities are getting involved. They want to redesign your toilet. Um, 
So the Stanford toilet is also the lead in this one, but, but there's also a Duke toilet we'll get to in a minute. Uh, so I'll quote, these smart facilities are designed to look out for signs of gastrointestinal disease, monitor blood pressure, or tell you that you need to eat more fish, all from the comfort of your personal throne. Now, there's also a proposal from Duke University, which I'm calling the Duke toilet. It analyzes the contents of your flush, and it tells you if you are getting the right amount of fiber and that sort of thing. It'll tell you how to change your diet. Um, and then I'm going to quote someone from Medic Life. In the article, if you want someone to use something, it has to be incredibly simple, says Chad Adams, president and chief executive of the company Medic.Life, which is working to get FDA a clearance for its Medic.Lav smart toilet. Everybody has to go to the bathroom. Now, we talked before, how do you make sure it's the right person? Okay, there's that thing. Maybe it could tell. Um, well, I mean, I, if I remember correctly, the one proposal is to take pictures of your butthole. I don't know if we want that. But um, anyway, Medic.Life wants to sell these things to assisted living facilities, which makes sense. It's probably a good idea if you're in an assisted living facility to check up on your health. And I think my main concern here with this kind of technology, and I think the main concern for the public, is privacy. Uh, I would like to see all of the upsides of these investments. Health monitoring can not only save your life, but it can help you live a better quality of life. I mean, think about it. Think if you're getting you know, uh, diet recommendations, personalized diet recommendations, uh, so that you can you know, wake up with more energy, healthier, you're, you're better overall. But this underscores the need to uh, think security and privacy first in terms of internet technology. And I think that's where we need to go. This is not 2005 where you just, you know, you put up a page in PHP and have people send you all their information and just uh, mash it together and see what you get. <laughs> we are getting into some really sensitive stuff these days and um, we need to think security and privacy first. So according to the article... A 300-person survey conducted by the Stanford team found that one-third of respondents were uncomfortable with the concept of smart toilet that collects health data, while many are citing privacy as a chief concern. Respondents were especially uncomfortable with the camera-based approach. Yes, that camera-based approach. Uh, more than half, however, were at least somewhat comfortable with the smart toilet. Um, and I think... You know, for me, I don't want this data to be used against people, uh, you know, to be able to be used in, uh, you know, investigations, for an example. What if they can see what drugs someone has taken or if they can use it to get, like, information about someone's sex life and, and all that stuff? You know, th there's a, a lot of talk right now, a lot of, frankly, probably, well, talk right now about I isolating the unvaccinated and a lot of, like, you know, propaganda i don't know everyone's putting on their on their pages like that they got vaccinated which is like really weird like you know i, I mean I, I i could tell you guys i got vaccinated but i'm not like you know putting it on my like proudly on my profile uh, i've noticed like you know people are like oh, i won't associate with people who are unvaccinated i mean it doesn't make any sense because if you're vaccinated, why would you have to worry? But uh, the, I feel there's a lot of hateful propaganda towards people who uh, have a difference of opinion and made a different choice. So it only underscores the need to better protect health data for the future because I don't know who they're going to go after in 10 years. They could be going after anyone. I mean, the mob um, is going this way and that way. And so if we're going to bring these smart toilets into our home, uh, I want the security system to be ironclad. 
uh, that the you know the the data couldn't be used for uh, well it, it, essentially like you know we could uh, somehow build models that uh, that give us personalized recommendation and alert the people who need to be alerted if there's a problem, but also something where it, uh, it there's no back door to be hacked by either, you know, criminals or, or the police or the government or anyone like that. But on the plus side, there is a big plus side here. The plus side is there is a real need for this type of medical innovation. Uh, doctors don't have a lot of data to go off when they treat you. You just come in, they have maybe 30 minutes to make a decision and that's it. And the machine learning approach that can take into account all your data and look to personalize recommendations can really go a long way in assisting and improving your health, especially for those small decisions that you make every day, like how are you going to change your diet um, and, uh, you know, what exercises should I do and what supplements should I be taking? Doctors don't have the time to sit down hours and hours and hours, um, and, uh, and go through this with you, uh, for most people at least. So, uh, this, uh, could be a very helpful piece of technology. I, I actually believe so. Um, given the caveats that I mentioned before, I would, I would bring a smart toilet into my home. Sure. I'm, I am very forward thinking, very pro technology. We all are here on the local maximum. Okay, finally, my last discussion of layers, we're going to go into a math topic. And this topic is a topic in propositional logic. And it's the idea of uh, having a set of objects, a set of mathematical objects, and trying to count them. So it's a counting problem. Counting is one of the main uh, problems in mathematics. And the main principle I want to go over today is something called the inclusion-exclusion principle. Very basic and very, um, very, it's pretty intuitive. And, uh, it's, it's something, it's very important. If you're you know, a high school student, you, you, it'd be good, good idea to understand this. So the question is this, if I have two mathematical sets of objects and I know how much are in each of them, you know, this one has 20 members and this one has 30 members and I put them together, how big is the resulting set? Well, you could say you could just add the two sizes. This one has 20, this one has 30, maybe the, the total has 50, but that doesn't really work if they're not disjoint. In other words, if they overlap, like let's say that um, they have 10 overlapping. So really the first one has, the first set has 20 people, the second set has 30 people, but actually 10 people are in both sets. So this is a good problem. This is actually like kind of an even, even uh, uh, younger in, in grade school. You can kind of go through this problem where in the end you have to subtract 10 because if you just add them together and get 50, you counted that group twice or in both groups. Uh, so to help with this, you can kind of think of a Venn diagram. Uh, and the two-set example is very difficult. If you think of a Venn diagram with two circles, you have uh, you know one circle on the right, one circle on the left. You add them together and then there's that little strip. It's kind of looks like an ellipse, but it's not really an ellipse because it has those two pointy things at the end, but the, the intersection of the two circles, when you add the number of items in the two circles together, that gets counted twice. So then you have to subtract that away. So oftentimes the definition given as the sum of the, um, the, uh, the, and I don't like this as a definition, but it's a, it's a mathematical fact it's that the sum of the, uh, the uh, sorry, the count of the union of two sets 
equals the count of the first set plus the count of the second set plus the count of the intersection of the two, or minus the, the count of the intersection of the two sets. So that, that last part is subtracting off the people who are counted twice. Uh, another kind of balanced way to look at it is the union of the sets plus the intersection of the sets equals the first set plus the second set. That's kind of an interesting, you know, an, an interesting identity. Um, again, I oftentimes this is given kind of definitionally, which I don't really like in the architecture of mathematics. But, uh, and, and be, you know, let's see, let's see what's going on with the three-set example, because you can see what's kind of getting more uh, complicated. Uh, so let's say you have three sets now. So, so now you can imagine in your mind a, uh, a Venn diagram with three circles. And now there are a bunch of overlaps. Each circle overlaps with the other one. And then there's that tiny middle piece where all three of them overlap. So what you have to do is you have to add all the sets together, A plus B plus C, but now the overlaps are counted twice, and that little piece in the middle, that's counted three times. So first you subtract all the overlaps, there are three overlaps, but each of those overlaps uh, contains that middle piece. So now the, little, the middle piece is missing entirely uh, because you added it three times, now you subtracted it three times. So now you just have to add it back in. Um, and so again, you get A plus B plus C, uh, you know, minus A uh, union B, or sorry, minus A intersection B, minus A intersection C, minus B intersection C, plus A intersection B intersection C. So that's to get the, the size of the whole union. I, if you didn't follow that, that's, that's, that's my point. It's already getting very complicated. And when you have more and more sets that are overlapping, you get this pattern where, you know, you add together the uh, size of every set, then you subtract off the overlaps, then you add in the, the, the triple overlaps, then you subtract off the quadruple overlaps, then you add in the, the uh, quintuple overlaps, and so on and so forth. So it's very complex in practice, and that's every potential collection of sets and their overlaps are involved in that calculation. So I think that calculation is going to be uh, exponential in time. Um, I think I've thought about this problem a lot from a philosophical perspective uh, to, to back up a little bit, because I think, you know, this is a problem where if you want to look at the simple Venn diagrams of two and three circles, those are like kind of middle school math problems. Um, if you look at like the generalized uh, problem of many sets and overlapping, that's sort of like a college math problem. But um, my concern, my, uh, not concern, um, Yes, so, so my concern, my solution, my concern is that while this is a way to connect the concept of union and sum, it actually ends up being a very complicated as a definition. So the question is, well, how do you connect the concept of union and sum? They're very different um, if you think about it. And, and it, uh, union means, hey, I have one set and I have another set and I want you know the set of everything that's in either or both. And then the sum means that you're actually just counting one group and then adding another group and not taking into account who's being counted twice. So I think that, um, you know, definitionally, we should probably keep the notion of addition and union somewhat separate. I prefer the idea of first introducing adding sets, not unioning them, which tells you which sections have a higher multiplicity. So in other words, don't think in terms of sets think in terms of multi-sets. Um, so in other words, if I add set A to set B, then um, essentially what you'll have is, you know, one, if you have that 
uh, you know, double Venn diagram, you'll have ones in the section that's only A, ones in the section that's only B, because all those things are counted one time. And then all the things in the middle section, you have twos, because those are counted twice. Same thing with uh, the triple Venn diagram overlapping, except in that little piece in the middle, those are threes, because those are counted three times. So now you have a multi a multi set where items are counted by multiplicity. They're not just in the set or outer set. Once you have, once you say I'm dealing with multi-sets and not sets, addition becomes pretty natural. And then the question becomes, okay, I want to get the union where I squash all of those down to one. Uh, how do I do that? Well, now you don't really need a definition for that. Now you already have uh, that kind of layered cake of uh, sets that you have, which uh, of different multiplicities, and you know can kind of figure out how much to subtract out in order to get all those values down to one, and you can then rederive the principle of inclusion and exclusion, which I think is pretty cool. I th I am thinking of doing some math lectures, not as part of the podcast, but as part of separate videos that I'm going to do, um, maybe some uh, additional content for the local maximum in the future. So stay tuned to that. I'd really like to um, get your feedback on that and, and what you think. It's very, this is just a very quick discussion. Always tough, tough to discuss math um, concepts, but I always try. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think if you expand from sets to multisets, you can then derive the PIE. I said this is a PI, but the principle of inclusion and exclusion. That's my main point. Okay, so... Now, we had a little bit of combinatorics today. We had a little bit of, uh, of uh, smart toilets. How is that layered? Oh, there are so many layers to the smart toilets. And then, of course, um, <laughs> layers of academic freedom and, and non-freedom, uh, all placed on top of each other. Uh, so thank you very much for listening today. See you next week on The Local Maximum. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at Maximum.Locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at LocalMaxRadio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to LocalMaxRadio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.